You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. This episode is another in our regular series, taking an in-depth look at the SMFM pregnancy meeting. To find out more about the meeting, go to www.smfm.org or go to the AJP homepage at www.tima.com forward slash AJP. Welcome to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series, the SMFM edition. Today's podcast will focus primarily on studies centering around the use of cell-free fetal DNA in screening or testing for aneuploidy. The first author is Dr. Robert Currier from the California Department of Public Health in Richmond, California, on behalf of the California Perinatal Screening Program. Their study was the performance of maternal cell-free DNA as a second-tier screening test for fetal aneuploidy. And their goal was to evaluate the performance of cell-free fetal DNA when offered as a second-tier screening test following an initial positive result for maternal serum screening for fetal aneuploidy. The authors calculated the sensitivity, specificity, true and false positives, and positive predictive values for the common aneuploidies in this high-risk population. They demonstrated that there is a 1.4% false positive for trisomy 21 screening and approximately 10% false positive for the other cell-free DNA positive results for other aneuploidy. Their conclusion is that although cell-free DNA screening has satisfactory performance as a second-tier test, these data highlight the need for genetic counseling to understand that it is not a diagnostic test and the consideration for amniocentesis to confirm DNA finding remains. Dr. Currier, congratulations on your presentation today at Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Can you tell us what the rationale for undertaking this study was for your group? We um, were concerned that there was an an impression that cell-free DNA screening was closer to a diagnostic test than a screening test. And so we wanted to look at our California population and see what the data from our program said. And the implication might be that patients are not really understanding the test that they were doing or... Exactly. Or that that people think that the the test is diagnostic and um, go on without actually doing the diagnostic confirmation. You have a fairly unique um, prenatal diagnosis program in California. Can you tell us a little bit about that program? Yeah, so California is the only state in the United States that operates as a public health screening program. So all of the pregnant women in California are offered prenatal screening through the state program. It's focused on traditional serum screening. So um, either first trimester using NT and serum or second trimester if if the woman's late to care. And then all of the women with screen-positive results are offered follow-up at what we call our prenatal diagnosis centers that are regional around the state where they get genetic counseling if it's a second trimester visit, a detailed ultrasound scan, and then the option for fetal DNA screening or diagnostic procedures. 
What percentage of the population do you think uptakes the pregnant population enrolls in that program? Or uh, somewhere between seventy and seventy-five percent of all pregnant women have participated in the state program. So, what were the main findings that that you guys discovered in this research? I wouldn't say that they're new or exactly surprising, but we were able to get some real numbers for the positive predictive value for the different part components of the cell-free DNA screening test. Down syndrome screening is very good. The positive predictive values about 98.5%. The other tests are not, not, not quite so good. And in particular, trisomy 13 is really, the positive predictive value is only about 60%. And one of the other components of our of the California prenatal screening program is that aneuploidies are reportable conditions to us. So we maintain a registry of cytogenetic abnormalities found in a fetus or an infant up to age one. And that allows us to estimate the missed cases, the cases that were screened negative on cell-free DNA. And so we found that the detection rate of Down syndrome is, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but roughly 97%. And for trisomy 18, about 91, 92%. The numbers for for the others are small enough that I I didn't want to do those. And those are of all the patients that had the cell-free DNA test. Right. And so this is is by nature a high-risk population. So the one thing that even in this population, I wouldn't want to extrapolate to the performance of cell-free DNA on a low-risk population. So that's an important point. So in your population, was cell-free being offered to women under 35 or with... It's, in- it's, it's offered to women of any age who have a positive serum screening result. So you're cell-free again in, in this, for our readers, was as a second... It's a, a second-tier second tier test. test. Right. <laughs> so what would you tell the, the sort of practicing obstetrician or practicing MFM? Uh, what's the take-home message from your, from your study or your research? I think the take-home mes- message is really to underline that cell-free DNA is a screening test, that it's not diagnostic, and this has really, in addition to just having patients understand that it's not diagnostic, to really underline the importance of diagnostic confirmation of positive results. So what is one of the next avenues of research using this, uh, this data or this population? Well, the next thing that we're going to be looking at are the women who have positive cell-free DNA results but choose not to have diagnostic confirmation, and we want to see what happened with those pregnancies. Thank you very much for joining us today, and congratulations on your wonderful presentation. Thanks. Thank you. Dr. Rebecca Reimers, on behalf of her colleagues from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, presented their paper entitled, Has Cell-Free Fetal DNA Decreased the Absolute Number of Chromosome Abnormalities Diagnosed Prenatally? These authors investigated the prenatal invasive testing rates and cytogenetic findings detected in fetuses overall, and those studied for an ultrasound indication before and after cell-free DNA introduction. The authors noted that after the uptake of cell-free fetal DNA, the number of diagnostic procedures decreased by 57% overall and was associated with a 35.9% decrease in detected abnormalities over this time period. The authors also found that ultrasound-indicated diagnostic testing 
was also reduced during this time period. They concluded that after cell-free DNA introduction, overall invasive procedures decreased with an expected increased likelihood of a karyotype abnormality with each diagnostic test. However, the overall diagnosis of aneuploidy in our prenatal testing cohort was significantly lower by 35.9% since 2011 when cell-free DNA was incorporated. Dr. Reimers, thank you very much for uh, joining us today, and congratulations on your wonderful um, oral presentation here at SMFM. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. So what was your motivation behind doing this study? So we were actually looking at the overall chromosomal abnormalities that were detected in this 10-year time period, and we just noted this pretty prominent decrease in the number of diagnostic tests and looked through the data that existed and realized that people hadn't really discussed very much about the actual abnormalities that um, were detected to see if there was any change over time. Why do you think there was a change over time? Why were there less getting detected? So we don't know based on the study specifically. We do know that there was a decrease in the number of people who had abnormal testing for ultrasound indications, particularly with structural abnormalities. So that's kind of a leading thought that perhaps people are getting structural abnormalities on their ultrasounds and not getting diagnostic testing. I think that what could underlie this is that several things, either patients are getting a lot more information from genetic counselors and choosing not to go undergo further testing, or the other more concerning possibilities would be that people are getting cell-free DNA that result that has a negative result, and then they wind up with a an other um, cytogenetic abnormality that's not detectable, or they're getting positive tests and then terminating their pregnancy or making reproductive choices based on that. So your hypothesis for this study was? Our hypothesis for this study is that the introduction of cell-free DNA has changed the patient decision of when to undergo diagnostic testing, and thus the amount of diagnostic testing that's done. What were the most important findings from your study? The most important findings are that we had a 57% decrease in the rate of diagnostic testing overall. Amongst that, 359 we had a 35.9% decrease in actual abnormal cytogenetic results. That was across the board. It didn't favor things that are detected by cell-free DNA and then everything else. That was a proportionate decrease in our overall detection rate. And you saw differences in both in patients that were having screening as well as in ultrasound-indicated testing? The majority of our population had an ultrasound abnormality. Some of those also had positive screening. What would you tell the practicing obstetrician or practicing MFM as to how to interpret this study and the important take-home implications from your study? I think good pretest counseling whenever you're considering a prenatal screening or diagnostic test is very important. Uh, understanding that cell-free DNA detects with pretty good reliability the um, abnormalities in chromosomes 21, 13, uh, 18 and then somewhat less but still sex chromosome abnormalities, but there are many things that are not detected. And then understanding that for structural abnormalities on ultrasound, the primary recommendation is that you undergo diagnostic testing. Where do you think uh, that this line of research should go or, or where are you taking this line of research in sort of the next in the next step? 
I would love this line of research to really be very patient-focused so that we understand what the introduction of new screening methodologies does to our population, but that we have, like are able to give patients very robust counseling about how specific screening tests can perform for them individually and to support their outcomes, whatever they are. What do you think might be some of the implications of this overall lower detection rate of certain um, chromosomal abnormalities, um, both in an ultrasound-indicated setting as well as in a, in a screening se- setting? There are several implications that I think are important. It would be very important to see if the number of pediatric diagnoses of genetic diseases is increasing, and if it's not, then we are likely still catching those abnormalities somewhere in the system in a way that I have just not well characterized that I think future studies could demonstrate better. Well, we look forward to seeing those future studies, um, maybe at next year's SMFM. Again, congratulations on your hard work and your oral presentation today. Thank you so very much. Have a good day. Dr. Mary Norton, on behalf of the University of California, San Francisco, and the Department of Public Health in California, presented their paper entitled The Utility of Nuchal Translucency Ultrasound in Identifying Chromosomal Abnormalities Not Detected by Cell-Free DNA Screening. In this study, they sought to determine the increased uptake of abnormalities when using nuchal translucency in the setting of a normal cell-free DNA. In their study, when they used cutoffs of greater than 3 millimeters, greater than 3.5 millimeters, and greater than 2.0 multiples of the median for an increased nuchal translucency, it demonstrated a modest increase of approximately 16.6% detection rate of the uncommon abnormalities not detected by cell-free DNA alone. However, they did note that in an average risk population, these abnormalities remain rare and most are not associated with an enlarged nuchal translucency. Dr. Norton, thank you very much for joining us today, and congratulations on your uh, wonderful oral presentation today at the uh, SMFM meeting. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about what your um, rationale or the reasons for doing this study. So we were, obviously the field of prenatal diagnosis has gotten very complicated, and how to use the available prenatal screening tests in a logical way is something we're all struggling with. People do first trimester combined screening with NT and serum or cell-free DNA screening, and the question is really which of those brings what to the table. And if one does cell-free DNA, we know there's some things that are missed. We know that there are a lot of things that can be found with nuchal translucency. So we were kind of interested in if one does cell-free How much would NT fill in the gap of those chromosome abnormalities that are not detected by cell-free DNA screening, which is about 25% of the total chromosome abnormalities that are out there, if you will. And when you were talking about doing NT screening, how do you, how does this differ than doing a traditional combined first trimester screening, or uh, did you use different different cutoffs or selected selected different nuchal translucency measurements? So when first trimester combined screening is done, it's serum and NT, and we've looked previously as to the utility of that in finding these chromosome abnormalities, but. Often a patient will have cell-free DNA screening and then have just the nuchal translucency part and not the screening test. And if one does just the NT, different programs use a cutoff of 3.0, ACOG, 
recently changed their recommendation to using a cutoff of 3.0. Other places use a cutoff of 3.5. In some places, do a gestational age adjustment and use two multiples of the median. So we were interested in those three different cutoffs and what the additional benefit of NT would be with each of those. In your experience, it wasn't really addressed in your paper, but have you seen a difference in utilization of NT screening and first trimester screening since since cell-free DNA has come out? You know, I work in California where everyone is offered participation in the California program, which includes first trimester screening. And I think we haven't really seen a decrease in patients doing that, but what we have seen is a huge increase in patients doing two screening tests at the same time. So because that is not particularly cost effective, we're trying to figure out what's, you know, what's sort of the best approach, maybe taking the best of both worlds. What were the main findings or main take-home measures from, or main findings from your study? I think the bottom line was that NT as a standalone is not a great screening test for chromosome abnormalities in general. It is best for Down syndrome and actually Turner syndrome and not particularly good for, certainly for the rare aneuploidies that are missed by cell-free DNA. It picked up overall about 15 to 16% of those, and that bucket of chromosome abnormalities is rare to begin with. So you end up doing an awful lot of screening for not a lot of yield if you're just thinking about these rare aneuploidies. How do you translate that information to the practicing MFM or practicing obstetrician? I think that the bottom line is doing that very precise nuchal measurement and using just that NT cutoff, at least for looking at chromosome abnormalities, again, is not that worthwhile. I think if you look at more of the anatomy, there's probably more yield. We did not specifically look at that. We didn't have access to that kind of data. But I think if you're going to do an ultrasound at 11 to 14 weeks, I think there needs to be demonstration of additional benefit beyond the rare aneuploidies to make it worthwhile. So your practice is evolving to incorporate a more detailed first trimester ultrasound and everybody that gets cell-free or not enough data on that or well, interesting place say, to go? Yeah, I would say all three of those things. So yes, we're starting to do that more. When we do an NT, we always kind of get a, as good a look at the fetus as we can transabdominally. If a patient is high risk because of a prior pregnancy or some other reason, we also do a transvaginal ultrasound and get a clearer look at the anatomy. And I think this is an area that there's going to be increasing attention paid. I think at the moment, there's really not probably enough data to say everybody should have this done, but I think it's we're going to hear a lot more about it over the next few years. Thanks very much for joining us today, and congratulations again on a wonderful presentation. Thank you very much. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about the journal at www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next time.